thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Okay, come There we go, it's going, it's going. 515 knots, keep running. There's the canisters. Right, let's go left. Just mentioned in the opening bumper there, it's just me this week. As you remember from the last episode, Sunshine is on assignment on an aircraft carrier half a world away from where I am. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that little intro bumper. It's a new way of doing it. We had some audio there from an attack in Desert Storm from 1991 by a British crew flying our aircraft for today, the Tornado from Panavia, and retired Royal Air Force Flight Lieutenant Cameron Dangerman Mackay will join us in just a few minutes to talk about the Panavia Tornado. First, as always, a couple announcements, and I think we'll have time for some questions today. I know we have owed you some, so we'll see if we can get through a few. Now, first off, we receive a lot of feedback here on the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Your emails, social media comments, etc. I just want to comment on a few things. First off, we received several suggestions for the show. Now, we have an idea of where we are going with future episodes, but we'll always take your suggestions. Just don't be dismayed, please, if we don't get to your idea right away. We'll do our best to find a guest who can come on and talk about that in the future. Secondly, yes, I realize I have some unique pronunciations. That's public education at its finest. Third, on Instagram, I'm happy to engage with you, and many of you can attest that I do. However, if you send a simple message, hi, I probably won't respond. I've learned that one the hard way. And so if you say something more like, hey, I'm a student and I'm hoping to be a pilot, blah, 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 as you know, I will respond and I'm happy to do so. And finally, with regards to comments like, this is low-grade trash, which I recently deleted off our YouTube channel. If you don't have something constructive to say, sorry, next time you see it, then it's probably not going to be there. But if you have some actual constructive criticism, hey, I'm happy to take that on board, and we generally try to do a good job of that if we can. Well, let's see. What other announcements do we have? 
Oh, that's right. Earlier this month, I attended Top Gun's 50th anniversary reunion celebration. You might remember Viper talking about that way back on the Real Viper episode that we had. And we deliberately did not talk too much leading up to it because it was not a public affair. They were worried with active duty military there that if we said too much, it could just be a security problem. So they asked me not to say too much on the show until it's over. But now that it's over, I can tell you I had a great time. And I reflected on it in a recent musings post that you can find on our website, just talking about why Top Gun is so special. So check that out if you're so inclined. And you can also find on our YouTube channel a new behind-the-scenes episode. That's some other content we've created recently. And you might remember Fitz Lee, call sign Dud, retired Navy captain. He was on episode five talking about tanking with us, and then he did a Facebook Live. He came back to do a behind-the-scenes on landing signal officers, and he will be back for the next one after that on some YouTube crashes and barricades that people often ask me to comment on. So look for those. All right, let's get into some listener questions. We've owed you these for a while, and we'll get through a few here. Now, Lee from Medway, Massachusetts, your first question about flight demonstration performances, not the teams like the Blue Angels, but the actual individuals like the Air Force has F-35 and A-10 teams, and the Navy's got their folks doing F-18 demos. I'm going to punt on that one for now, Lee, because I'm hoping to get someone on the show to talk about that. We've had several questions about demonstration teams. But Lee has another question. He says, I had read an article about the attack on Pearl Harbor and that there were reports of some of the AAA, you might remember that's anti-air aircraft artillery that were shot up at the Japanese but fell back to earth and caused property damage and civilian casualties. That got me thinking about what happens to air-to-air missiles that miss their target. Do they self-destruct, run out of fuel and fall to the ground, or what? Over a range, I suppose it is no big deal, but during combat over land in a populated area might be a bit of a concern to those in the area. Have there any been any reported instances of civilians, ground personnel, or buildings being hit or happening upon unexploded ordnance? Now, first off, Lee, I'm going to pick on you here a little bit publicly. I'm sorry, but this everyone does this, so I just need to make the case, since I'm in the business of teaching and educating here, that ordnance, like weapons, is spelled O-R-D-N-A-N-C-E. For those of you that are spelling it with an I, that is like a city law, like an ordinance to not have loud music after 10 p.m. So anyway, just a uh, quick note there on semantics and spelling. But Lee, to your point, ordinance has always been found in Europe. And anywhere like in the Middle East where there has been heavy combat over the years, they will continue to dig up ordnance. And there are teams in France and elsewhere that go around when farmers uncover a weapon and make sure it's taken care of. Other than that, our BVR Productions researcher, Scott Morris, did a little help here for me. And he found out that in April 1991, for example, he says the military officials identified a fully armed AIM-9 Sidewinder on the shoreline of Lake Michigan. <laughs> in April 2018, two cruise missiles found unexploded by the Syrian military after the U.S. military strike on April 14th were collected and handed over to Russia. Surprise, surprise. August of 2018, a Spanish Eurofighter accidentally fired an AIM-120 AMRAAM in Estonia, and they never did find the missile or the debris. And again, there is always ordnance showing up in different places like Europe and parts of uh, where World War II happened in the Pacific. So yes, this is a concern. Some weapons do have self-destruct features. Most of them will make their way down to earth and sometimes detonate on contact, but other times just 
you know, hit and not explode. And sometimes that is then the subject of exploitation. No surprise there. All right, next up is a question from Magpie. You might remember that name. He's one of our Patreon mission commanders. He says, following recent civil aviation accidents, there is industry focus on loss of control in flight following flight control malfunctions. If an angle of attack probe fails in the Hornet, i.e. gets damaged during refueling, let's say, can accurate AOA readings still be provided, and does the fly-by-wire system need to be deactivated in this situation? Great question, Magpie. So we have two angle of attack probes on the F-18, one on the port side, one on the starboard side. And if there is a large discrepancy between the two, we receive a caution in the aircraft. And then we have a certain page where we can go and the aircraft will do its best to say, I think it's this one that has a problem. And oh, by the way, if that caution appears while you're trying to get into the aerial refueling basket and you feel a little something on the side of the airplane and that caution comes up, guess what? It's probably the right or starboard probe. At any rate, it'll put a box around one and it will say, I think this one is faulty. I'm isolating it. And then there is a mode where we can go in and say, hey, I want you to use this one and not that one. And the system has redundancy so that the fly-by-wire is not completely deactivated in that case. Good question. And next up, a question from Elliot. Not sure where Elliot is from, but the question is, in the Navy and Marine Corps Hornet, are there squadrons, Legacy and Rhino, excluding Growler, that specialize in or practice the suppression of enemy air defenses slash destruction of enemy air defenses, so SEAD or SEED and DAS? And so do they do that more than other squadrons? In the Air Force, certain F-16 units would have the SEED mission and others would not. This is due to limitations of the block or series of the F-16 in the squadron and other factors. And I believe Elliot sent this question in before T-Day came and tightened us up on the F-16. Good question, Elliot. So interestingly, up until recently, I would say every F-18 squadron has the same capability in this. Now, during the unclassified briefings at the Top Gun reunion recently, where all the old bros, as we're called, got together and talked about what's new, one of the comments that was made was that this jack-of-all-trade kind of paradigm that we've always had in the F-18 is becoming untenable, partly because of the air-to-air missions are just becoming so difficult. But really, with all the new weapons coming online and all the missions, it's getting to the point where Top Gun may recommend that we have specialized squadrons. So for right now, the answer is no. In the Navy and Marine Corps, everyone has the same capabilities, but that could change in the future. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hi, Joe. This is Paul calling from Los Angeles. I got a question for Sunshine. Would a plane with anhedral wings... All right, Paul. Well, sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt that one, and we'll punt on that until Sunshine is back. Sounds like that's going to be something right up his alley. Plus, you're calling him out, so we'll wait for him to come back. All right, how about one final question then from Darren? And I don't know where Darren is from, but he says, could you tell when a yellow shirt was a newbie? Did you get accustomed to certain yellow shirts, how they directed, have a preference, etc." Now, remember, a yellow shirt is a taxi director on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. And Darren, you know, they wear the UI under instruction on their helmets, and there always will be another yellow shirt next to them when they're in training. But for the most part, you could kind of 
get a glimpse of who it was and have an idea. But it wasn't like, oh, there's Fred or there's Joe or whatever. They all use standardized hand signals. And for the most part, they might have a little technique of like, they'll give you a head nod or a, a hip bump or something to kind of get you just to make a small correction when you're close to the side of the ship, let's say, as you're taxiing. But for the most part, I didn't have any trouble with them. I'd heard though, anecdotally, that there were pilots that would get out of the airplane afterwards and go find the yellow shirt and yell at them. And of course that never worked well because they're doing their jobs just like you are and they belong to someone else. But you know, the handler would typically intervene, but if they felt like the yellow shirt was doing something unsafe, there were certain pilots that would say something. And I just, that was never me. I never did that, but apparently some people could, but not me. All right, well, why don't we jump to the interview? Now, you'll find that this is our second remote interview. The audio quality will be a little better than the first one. We didn't record Skype this time. We actually each recorded our own sides, and then we put it together while we were talking on the phone. And then I know I have a strange accent relative to Danger Man here, but uh, you'll do your best, I'm sure, to make sure to understand what each of us are saying. And there was only one term that I heard him say that I really had to think about, and that was the USAF. And what he means there, of course, is the U.S. Air Force. That's just a different way of saying it. But at any rate, let's get to the interview on the Panavia Tornado. All right, joining me on the phone today for only our second remote interview here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast is retired Flight Lieutenant Cameron Mackay of the Royal Air Force. Cam, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. Yeah, I mean, gosh, what? You listened to the show, and I think you sent me an email at one point and said, hey, I like the show, and I thought, well, hey, you want to come on? And here you are. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You keep me occupied on my drive to work on the podcast, so that was ah. a dream. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, we are going to talk about one of the aircraft you flew, the Panavia Tornado. But before, as you know, you listen to the show. Tell us a little bit about Kim. Okay. I was born in Singapore. My father was a serviceman, but he was in the army. So I was born in the late 60s in Singapore. I came to the UK when I was five or six, went to school in Scotland, and basically joined the Air Force straight from school. Back in the day in the 80s, it was straight from high school. The demographic was Cold War's on, we need some guys, get on in there. And there were quite a bit of takers in. So I was commissioned at 18 out of the uh, officers' college. The thing is, they don't let us near any any real soldiers or airmen by then. You're just straight into the flying system. You don't really be an officer much. You get the salutes, but you don't do a lot. So I did that, and then straight through basic flying training on the Jet Provost Mark III, Mark V, selected for fast jet training. Then the Tornado. Did a tour on the Tornado, flying reconnaissance tornadoes from Honington on 13 Squadron. And my second tour was as a tactical weapons instructor on the Hawk at uh, RF Valley, where we did advanced flying training for the guys and um, tactical weapons. So the lead-in before they go to their type conversion, I don't know what the equivalent would be uh, with the USAF or the US Navy, but uh, that was a fun job. Did that, left the Air Force uh, after 10 years, went to the airlines, and now I fly big aeroplanes, and I do that (laughs) for a living. Okay, excellent. Yes, I assume if you were training the students, it would be maybe similar to the advanced phase of jet training or maybe the fleet replacement squadron, as we would call it. Although, did you say you were flying the Hawk, sort of equivalent to our Gauss Hawk, right? Yeah, equivalent, I suppose, yeah. So that that was an intro into the tactical side. So without being specific about aircraft types, it was how to look after fuel, fly tactical formation, basic weaponry before you learn the specialized on your type. 
Okay, sure. That would be probably our training right before you earn your wings and then go off to fly mm. your fleet aircraft. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how many hours do you have in various models of the Tornado? Uh, the Tornado, I have just over 1,000 hours on that one. I think it was about 1,200 hours is what I achieved on that. Oh, cool. And about the same on the Hawk, and then left and racked up the hours in the airlines. But, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, about 1,200 hours. Yeah. Well, hours in the airlines are a little bit more benign, and mm. usually George, as we call the autopilot, yeah. is flying, not us. So yeah. Anyway. yeah, but that's a secret. Well, Don't tell anybody that. Yeah. That's right. They still pay us handsomely, yeah. uh, I would yeah. say. Yeah. All right, great. Well, let's jump right into the tornado. Tell us what it was designed to do and maybe a little background on how it came to be, if you would. Yeah, sure. Um, it was designed as a, a deep strike all-weather aircraft, which it was very good at, and it was designed to take the fight to the enemy, be accurate at long ranges in all weathers, and it utilized some of the new technology coming out in the late 60s, early 70s, and it went into service in the 80s. And it initially was a consortium of many nations, but finally the three nations that took it on was the UK, Germany, and Italy, although some other nations bounced in and out. I have heard Belgium mentioned Canada. I think Canada dropped out very, very early in the 70s, okay. um, from what I hear. But essentially, um, when it was built, it was with the Germans, Italians, and the Brits. Uh, okay. In fact, trains together on the airplane as well at one point. So, uh, uh, and that's what it was for. It was um, all weather, deep strike, you know, take the fight to the enemy through the forward edge of the battle area and way, way, way into enemy territory. Not necessarily designed to be a dogfighting, you know, get close in knife fight type thing, right? No, not really. But uh, there, is, there is a variant. I'm sure we'll talk about the variants later. But one of the variants they had uh, was almost an interim type airplane where they, they used a tornado with an air defense radar, which apparently was actually quite good, I hear from my, oh. my friends. But uh, when they designed it, one of the names it went through was the MRCA, the Multi-Role Combat Aircraft. Okay. Yeah, my, my chums would laugh if I say, yeah, we could have a fight in it. Um, you, you would always, as you guys say, you'd only fight to your strengths and, and the enemy's weaknesses. <laughs> um, and it did have its points. But generally speaking, it, it was a bomber. And when they made it into a, a fighter, uh, they did put a good radar in it, but it was still a tornado airframe. So still heavy. Gotcha. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so not really a dogfighter, but it did serve some time as one. Maybe more of a long-range interceptor, similar to the mm. F-14's fleet defense role, something along those lines, kind of strike attacking bombers at a distance kind of thing? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think okay. they, they had some pretty good trap while scan radar, but again, they, hey, that's out of my realm now. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm a mud mover. So. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, so you say it does the deep strike well. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the variants? Mm -hmm. And this is where I owe the audience a mea culpa way back on episode Gosh, what was it? Eight, I think, when we did terminology and the tornado came up, I made some comment, I think, about the GR1 being maybe from Great Britain or something. And I was schooled on that, but I still am not very clear on all the different tornado variants. So, Cam, why don't you tighten us all up on that, if you will, as the expression goes? Yeah, sure. I'll see if I can tidy that up. It's a standard thing to have GR in, in Brit airplanes. So, uh, for example, the tornado was a GR1, it starts off, and the G and the R um, is basically ground attack and reconnaissance. So that that okay. typically spells out its role. So um, if we look further and further ahead, just to give a bit of background, if you look at the Typhoon, I think that goes under the FGA or FGR. So the F means it's a fighter, and the G means mm -hmm. it can also do ground attack. So I think similar to your FA in your F-18. So the G and the R is ground attack and reconnaissance. Um, and generally speaking, most of the ground attack aircraft that we have will be employed in a reconnaissance role. So hence the GR. Gotcha. And the, the first one is, usually, is, is always a one. So it's the GR-1. 
the model I flew uh, of my first squadron was flying the GR1A. Now, the A was a minor variation where we had reconnaissance kit installed within the aircraft itself. So it wasn't a pod, it was actually part of the equipment. And in fact, I'm sure we'll talk about armament later, but it took away our guns. We had no guns for strafe, um, and mm. that was all recce kit. So that was a GR1A. There was a GR1B. Uh, the B was a maritime attack model. I think Sea Eagle, I think, is the weapon they carried. Uh, we had a okay. few of those modified into no, maritime attack role to take the place of the, the Buccaneer. And then it went to an F. So the number goes up, and it went to an F2 and an F3. The F being fighter, and we, we talked a little bit about that a moment ago, didn't we? The, right. um, yes. the fighter role. So the F2 was, again, was an interim just while they got the radar sorted, the airframe sorted, um, and then the F3 was the, the in-service model. And then the GR1 had an upgrade, and that was almost like a midlife update where digital map instead of a projected film, better nav equipment much more weapons capability, a lot more varied weapons that they could have on board, and that became the GR4. Obviously, it's coming after the F3, but then it goes back to a GR onto a 4, and it finished just this this year, on the 1st of April, as the that's GR4. Right. So, uh, And that's it. It's quite simple, really. So, And you can follow that <laughs> um, amongst all Royal Air Force aeroplanes as to, to what level they're at. You sometimes skip one, and that's often with a, with a trainer, but generally speaking, um, it's quite simple, like it was in a tornado. And the so, terminology was specific to the aircraft, not necessarily the operator. So Italy, the UK, West Germany might have all had variants of those, or would they call them the, something unique in the different countries? Actually, that's a good point. I think they're different. Yeah, the uh, so a specific model that the Germans had, and I'm not sure if the Italians did as well, was the ECR. And again, I don't know what that stands for, but that was basically their CID aircraft, their suppression of enemy air defences. So right. um, that would be their wild weasel type thing. But again, I don't know how their nomenclatures went. We were okay. different. Mm-hmm. Well, if uh, Cam, if Wikipedia is to be believed, <laughs> ECR apparently stands for Electric Combat Slash Reconnaissance. Ah, there we so, go. Yeah. What about the like terminology, IDS, ADV, ECR. I mean, we just talked about the ACR. Did you ever use the, the IDS interdictor strike or the ADV air defense variant, or did it basically come down to what you talked about, the GR1A, GR1B, F3, yeah. etc.? I think in, in service uh, within the Royal Air Force circles, we would call it, you know, the GR1, gotcha. you know, the F3 and so on. But we all knew that the, the IDS, the interdictor strike and the ECR and the ADV air defense variant. So they were generic terms that I think if you've got a crowd of guys from different nations, we know what we were talking about. Um, okay. so, so but in-house, we would we would always talk about it as the GR1. And in fact, we had so many of them at one point. They were so prolific. Well, not prolific compared to U.S. Navy assets and USAF assets. But we had at one point eight squadrons squadrons in Germany alone um, and if you said GR1 people knew you meant the tornado even though at that time the Jaguar GR1 existed you, you would just oh. call it the Jag uh, the GR1 right. was the tornado even though the Jag had the same nomenclature um, as they did well it. we have our own vernacular and yeah. like you said nomenclature mm. sure okay yeah. and then was there any other countries that flew it? I thought I read that Saudi Arabia was an export. Yeah, they had an export variant. I don't know how different it was to ours. I don't think it was very different at all, but that was a big okay. arms contract thing in the late 80s, and I believe they're still flying them. I'm not entirely sure, oh. but I think they still do. Okay. Mm. Otherwise, they're retired, as you said earlier this year, from, mm-hmm. and this is 2019, yeah. from service in the U.K., 
All right. Now, we didn't really say it, but it is a two-place cockpit, right? Pilot, mm-hmm. and what would you call the person in the back? Is it um, also a pilot? No, um, a navigator. Certainly in my time as a navigator, I think there's a move, there has been a move within the Royal Air Force to that then becomes a weapon systems operator. But at okay. the time, certainly during my service, he was known as a navigator. Navigation wasn't his prime role, but that's that's what they were known as. So was, definitely, Okay, just the yeah. title. Yeah. All right, mm-hmm. and it is a single-tail twin-engine and also swept wing fighter. And this is the part of the discussion where we usually say, what is something distinctive or why does it look the way it does? So I think the swing wings are probably as good a topic as any in that regard, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously we're, we're familiar. I know from listening to your F-14 episode, we talked about, you know, slow approach speed or slower approach right. speeds, but also get the wings back. We can go faster. Yeah, so that's that's the obvious uh, aspect of it. But it had quite a lot of unique features with it. It had single fin, which meant it was a big fin. Um, right. to, to keep that directional stability. It's quite a, a stubby aeroplane. And, and in fact, amongst the Royal Air Force, it was known as the Finn at some point. It was just, or the <laughs> Norfolk Land Shark. It was just this great big fin, and it was obvious what it was. Um, so, yeah, single fin. It also had, um, believe it or not, thrust reverse on the engines. So oh. as we touched down, rock the throttles outboard, the buckets would deploy at the back of the jet, and you would reverse your thrust for a short field landing performance. Unusually, we could have stores under the wings, even with the wings swept, so they did move with the wings, um, oh. and a complicated spring system that uh, kept oh, the fillets boy, together, sure. um, and rods and <laughs> levers and things. And we did have limits if the system wasn't working correctly, but uh, we had all of that. Um, and, and all sorts of all sorts of other goodies. Um, it had intake ramps, so we could bring the, the airflow very similar to... Uh, Concorde at the time developed at a similar time, and I think the F-14 had intake ramp control to again for supersonic air going into the intakes to help that with the engines, and that was mm-hmm. all fairly fairly new at the time. I think okay. so it was all it made it kind of made it look looks like a regular fighter, but if you look a bit closer, you can start to see some uh, some bizarre concepts within it. Right. Well, the swept wing with the moving pylons or stores or whatever that sounds pretty interesting. Was was there ever in your experience or from your friends anecdotally? problems with them not functioning correctly and if so did you have any kind of indications in the cockpit um generally not I'm, i don't know of any individuals or friends who had a their, their wings stuck at any point and, and had to do a swimming approach but it is something we used to practice every month you'd have your your requirements right. and they could be stuck at 45 or 67 but we didn't have automatic wing sweep like the tomcat did oh. it was manually done so we generally tended to keep it in the three positions 25 move it to 45 for low level um, back to 67 which we call bat wing you put it in bat wing to go nice and quick and there was actually when we got onto the larger fuel tanks which came around just about gulf war one you couldn't sweep the wings to 67 because the tailplane would bang mm. into the back of the um, the tanks so they had a, a switch to put them to 63 or a manual a man- welded across the wing sweep lever pretty much to stop you bringing them back too far Um, but uh, I'm not aware of anyone that's had them stuck that I know I'm sure it will have happened somewhere um, sure flown a fast approach right what about if the stores didn't pivot was that a a problem at all or was that mechanical and Uh, almost never had it I don't think it ever mostly ever happened it's fairly mechanical but if you're if you're traveling along fairly quickly and the pylon doesn't want to straighten out I think with the airflow it might might help but um, to be honest (laughs) I'm not aware of any any difficulties that have have come with that 
No problem. Mm-hmm. What about in the flight deck? How was the displays and indications as far as, was it old dials and gauges or was it monitors? How, how was that? It was old style dials and gauges. It did have a couple of screens. Now for us in the front as the pilot, we had uh, a moving map display, which is in the center of, of everything, which was a projected 35 millimeter film. Um, and oh. it would move around through a Fresnel lens to, to give you where you were on the map. Um, it suffered from <laughs> map stretch, and if you if it went flicking off, and it, you, you wouldn't know where you were if you were in an outside, out of area, and it'd be all a bit very compelling. Uh, but okay. it's old, old style dials. We had a head up display, fairly narrow field of view, but a very good one. And we also had an e scope, which, um, if you ever see any photos of the, of the aircraft, um, uh, top left of the instrument panel is an e-scope, and that's for the terrain-following radar. And it's not something I've mentioned oh. yet, but we had terrain-following radar, which could be coupled with the autopilot. And so that uh, was our display as a pilot to, to make sure that it was doing what it should be doing. But everything else was was fairly old-fashioned in terms of steam dials, well-presented, mm-hmm. I, I would think, um, and a very wide and roomy cockpit, very quiet oh. and very wide and roomy, lots of room in there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, in the low altitude stuff, that was part of its bread and butter, right? Was low altitude strike? Was that generally a daytime mission, or I suppose with that display, is that something you did at night as well? Yeah, we did it at night too. So um, we, we basically trained everything towards day VMC, and then we moved on to the the night terrain following stuff. So being all weather, the the, the, the idea was on a squadron that you could you could get airborne as a four ship in lovely weather and if the weather turned bad that's not a mission abort that is move into a different option uh, into your backup plan engage the terrain following with the autopilot and you could select um, soft, medium or hard ride how many G it would pull up and, and use while you're at low level and we could take it down to 200 feet using the, the system Wow. The first couple of times you do it, it makes you think very, very hard, and you feel you worked a lot harder <laughs> than if that was a day mission leading a four-ship, a six-ship on a time on target with all the other aspects that you have to think about, just flying your aeroplane in cloud at low level. But I have to say um, it was a very, very good system. It could come and bite you. Uh, we used to do a couple of manoeuvres where we would do at night on the range. you do terrain following into a loft attack, um, so pulling up with the afterburners in, loft the bomb from a few miles away, disengage the autopilot to perform the loft, get the aircraft pointing 10 degrees nose down. Now, it doesn't sound a lot, but I'll ask anyone at night to be at 2,500 feet and put their nose 10 degrees nose down and then right. re-engage the autopilot. And it will, it will. they tell us, it will level out and, and back into it. And it did. But if you got it wrong, it could have tragic consequences. Oh, gosh. So, well, so that was, that... yeah, you needed confidence. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. If we don't have confidence in our equipment, we are not very good pilots, I find. Oh, yes. Wow, okay. Were night vision goggles ever adapted for the air crew? Yeah, um, we did. Uh, round about Gulf War one time, um, night vision goggles started to become a thing. Um, so okay. th- there were quite a few modifications needed inside the cockpit on the lighting, which I, I know you're familiar right. with. So things like the warning yes. panel became quite tricky because that had to be green. Um, so instead of amber right. and red captions, if you get light green or dark green as to the severity of, uh, of what was happening. So, yes, we did have that. Um, it wasn't at the time an integral part of the operations, and I know after my time it was something that started to get used. I only used them a couple of times myself. Gotcha. Um, yes, in my first FA-18 squadron in 1997, we would literally turn all the cockpit lights as low as possible or off 
And then we would just have to bear with the few lights that were not NVG compatible. And some folks even brought black electrical tape and would just put a little piece over <laughs> while they were using the goggles just as a workaround. But yeah. not ideal, but, you know, that's what we have to do in the profession of arms sometimes. Mm-hmm. Cam, let's talk about armament. And I think from my research that the tornado carries just about everything, seems like. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, certainly as the years have progressed and when, when they had the GR4 upgrade, um, it took on a mm. lot more precision armaments, a lot more that are also seem to be specifically designed for use with a tornado. Initially, it was really your standard dumb bombs we used to carry. We call them HEMC, high explosive, medium capacity, a thousand pound bomb, which I think would be your um, Mark 80... Three or four? Three. Three. Mark 83 would yeah. be a thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was our standard weapon with, and we would add a different tail. So a retarded tail, it was just a tail mm-hmm. section to go on the back of it, a retarded tail, or a, um, keep it as a slick tail, and that would, would define it, the type of delivery. So initially that sort of thing, and of course cluster bomb, which was uh, ours was designated the BL755, and of course special weapons, we call them. And yes. there was a role to, to do stuff with special weapons. Um, okay. You can find them in museums around the UK now, which takes you aback when you see one but they're there um, so it's designed primarily for that sort of thing and, and that was fairly limited in, in its armament it could drop um, thousand pound bombs with a paveway kit um, initially with someone else lazing for you so an urgent requirement they had at Gulf War 1 was to get the Buccaneers fixed up with uh, come out with their old uh, pods again I can't remember the name of their pods but um, they, they would come out and mark some targets and then they rushed through production of a pod called the Tyald pod thermal imaging and laser designation. So we had two or three of those in the entire Royal Air Force transported out to the Gulf at the time <laughs> compared to right. what you guys had. Um, so that was basically it. And, and some other special weapons. One of them was JP-233, which was a runway denial weapon, which is, mm. is a kind of a it's a cluster munition. It was designed to crater a runway and also leave some nasties behind for the guys clearing up. But it was designed mm. to deny the enemy the runway. But the problem was, it's more sort of Operation Certain Death. You, you have to come in on a particular direction if you're the last right. man in a four-ship. And this was used in Gulf War I, um, you know, so it's a special sort of process. It's, it's very predictable, but it was designed specifically for the tornado. Being a cluster munition, not used anymore, and that, that went out of service mm. fairly quickly. And then the GR4 came along, and I know they've got uh, Brimstone, which is your anti-armor guided weapons. They can carry quite a lot of those, I, I gather, and they have been used a okay. lot in anger in some of the recent theaters. Uh, Storm Shadow, air-launched cruise missile, that can, can come on there as well. Wow. And I, th- I believe there's a couple of other bits and pieces that I've not dropped or familiar with. So, But, yeah, so it's... In terms of interchangeability with US-led and US-designed weapons, that's always tricky. Um, one of the reasons, and I'll, I can bore you with this this aspect, we had um, a different suspension system for our weapons on the airplane. So where you're oh. used to walking around and looking at your bombs, you would have seen a, um, just a lug on the top of the bomb, and then the right. hook will grab hold of that, and you have a sway brace system to stop it rocking around. We had a, if, not that you wouldn't ever see one, but we just had this great big metal block on top, and the jaws of the pylon would grab hold of this metal block, and it was called minimum area crutchless equipment. It sounds rude, but um, it's the idea is designed to be less drag, so you didn't have the sway brace sticking out either side. Problem with that was you guys don't produce your bombs with that on, um, so it's something that okay. has to go on. I'm sure the armourers know what they're doing, and they put one on, but, but certainly it was a lot of very UK-centric weapons um, that, that we would generally carry in my time. Um, 
Mm. And of course the gun. So, right. Mm. Well, and the gun was what? A two cannon, 27 millimeter cannon? That's it, yeah. Or two barrels, two, excuse me. Um, yeah, two, two actual individual guns. So, um, so okay. it would be one barrel, but it was still a rotary action. So where oh. something like your, your cannon has got... The, all the barrels will turn and everything happens for each barrel and each, each chamber has got its own barrel. Ours was just like a revolver. So it, every round went through the same barrel, but the same principle <laughs> behind it in terms of the rotating chambers um, with the, the bits and pieces oh. going on. It was quite long range. It was, uh, it was accurate when you had the laser to fire to get your range. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't get to do much strafe because we did that at the conversion unit. Then I go to reconnaissance and we didn't have them. Um, okay. But when you did have the laser shooting down to give you a good targeting solution, then the dot was where the bullets were going. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Do you remember how many rounds the aircraft could carry? Uh, no, I, I have to confess, Joe, no, I don't. I do remember we okay. had high and low rate, and most of us just like high because sure. that's just what we do. But that's yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then in my research, it looked like the maritime strike variants could do some anti-ship missiles. Yeah. And then what about anti-radiation missiles? I believe there were some options there. Maybe You maybe you might have said it. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't mention that. In fact, that's an alarm. And again, that was a UK-based missile. So where you guys um, in the US have the harm, um, the UK um, developed alarm. So very similar. <laughs> it was just okay. harm was taken. They came up with something else. That's right. Um, but it almost exactly the same principle. Um, the way they did that with the tornado force back in the day was to have have that as a specialized role for, for a particular squadron so every oh. squadron would would tend to could do pretty much everything but you would have a specialized squadron that would be the alarm specialists and likewise with their special weapons um the guys in germany had more of a commitment on that uh, than we did uh-huh. elsewhere so um yes so and we had a reconnaissance specialization so perhaps we certainly didn't and my squadron touch upon alarm at all but uh, you know that the aircraft was equipped that it could use it if we needed to. Hmm. Okay, and then I read that it could do aerial refueling, so it would carry a buddy store. Yep, very rarely used. I think okay. I, I've not seen it used. I have refueled from a buccaneer. Um, a buccaneer could carry one, so I have refueled from other right. aircraft. But the tornado was designed to have it. I've never seen it used in anger, and I have to confess, I don't know if it ever certainly was used in the time that I was there. Okay. Our, our main role really was just to go and take it from other, other big guys rather than us at each other. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure, that makes sense. And how about air-to-air missiles, Cam? We could carry um, AIM-9s, so generally 9 leaders. Sidewinder. Yeah, sidewinders. So okay. we would carry sidewinders uh, for self-defense, although interestingly for us in the reconnaissance role, if we're sneaking around in the dark on our own, um, it's just extra drag and wait. If you're in the dark, right. it's not much use to you. If you're running away from the bad guy anyway, then we would generally take them off and just reduce that drag index on a normal mm. sortie. I know the F3 could carry our own designed Skyflash. It could carry Sparrow, I believe, Skyflash, which was a UK-based missile. And the F3 also, I believe, towards the end of its time, was cleared and had fired the AMRAM. So I think the system oh, the M120. Was, yeah. Okay. So I think that was that was all geared up for that. But for us, of course, we were just pure self-defense with heat seekers. Right. Mm. And some of the drawbacks of doing that, as you stated. Yeah. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. 
In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading the supersonic bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Great. All right. Well, let's talk about the performance of the tornado. And I want to say beforehand that I might have mentioned before on the show or maybe when I was a guest on other podcasts that when I was a Top Gun instructor, we used to have every class an event called the Grad 1v1. It was a real fun event because what it would happen is all these other aircraft would fly into Fallon, Nevada, and they'd all congregate in the briefing room in the morning and Top Gun staff would put on a show and then, you know, make some fanfare. But eventually when they got down to business, they would hand everybody an envelope. And in the envelope was a time, a place, a frequency, and an altitude. And that was your assignment to show up at a merge and fight whoever also had that time and place and a different altitude by about a thousand feet. And I always enjoyed that because in my F-18 at the time, I later came back as an F-16 pilot and did that. But in the F-18, I once got to fight an F-5. I fought an F-16. I fought a T-45, which was a lot of fun. And one time when I arrived at the merge, I got to fight a tornado. (laughs) And it was amazing to see. They'd come up, I think, from Holloman. I think maybe the Germans had a debt down there. And I don't mean to pick on you, Cam, but it wasn't much of a fight. And we already talked about the fact that it's not a dogfighter anyway. But it did not seem to me to be in its element in a dogfight. So Mm. was it limited by G or altitude or Um, performance or kind of? uh, What can you tell us about the performance of the uh, tornado? Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm, trust me, I'm not offended. We know we we were just mud movers. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah, it was it was a heavy airplane. The engines were good at low level. It was believe it or not a triple spool engine. So um, it, once you got it wound up, it, it was good. And I've seen some really okay. good low-level speeds. You get the wings back into Batwing. We operate in Goose Bay or Coke Thunder in Alaska. You know, we're down at operational low-flying heights. So we were cleared down mm-hmm. to 100. I've seen 1.1, and it would wow. just go. It would just keep going. Of course, you're throwing fuel out of the back, but it, it would have no problem. Ask me to turn. Okay, at 1.1, that's tricky. But even at slow speed, where the wings are 25, where the maneuver slats out, and the maneuver flap out, I'm going to run out of energy really, really quickly. And generally okay. speaking, if we fought each other in practice, we'd always just be at base height, slow speed scissors at 21 units, just crisscrossing. <laughs> um, so, sure. f- so for us, our tactics generally were run away bravely. Um, so, yeah, it was it was limited in its maneuverability for sure, and it really had okay. no way to get the energy back. I recall from one of your guests talking about the F-16, and in fact, you will, of course, experience this, being able just to get that energy back. Um, anytime you wanted, and it's just oh, something. Oh, just release some yeah. pressure on the stick in a few seconds in yeah. the F sixteen. Yes, yeah, that was not, nothing for us. We just couldn't do that. Yeah, we we pushed till your feet were off the floor while you were running away to have less <laughs> zero lift induced drag. But yeah, we knew that we couldn't sustain a fight. And our techniques, and in fact, as mud movers, mm. generally were were around. And our training was called evasion. So it was to negate the initial threat. So if we see you bad guys coming in and you, you've come to a merge, we've managed to perhaps negate the radar missile you're throwing at us and we get to a visual merge, our idea was point at you, be quick. And by the time you've mm-hmm. swiveled around, we've gone, is what we're hoping. Um, so it's all about pointing at you and then getting away. Um, that was sure. Yeah. Um, well, and that yeah. is smart because you need to fight to the strengths yeah. of your aircraft and minimize its weaknesses, and that's what you did. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, and, and acceleration, at low level, it performed well with its acceleration. A clean aeroplane mm. could accelerate very, very quickly. 
especially if you went into combat power. So we used to have, obviously, reheat on, on the aircraft or afterburners on afterburners, the aircraft. Afterburners, we'd yeah, call it, yep. yeah. And then we'd have another detent, which would put an overtemp um, down the back, an, an allowable overtemp, just okay. to give you that little bit of extra. And one of the things <laughs> that they do on the conversion unit, you initially fly clean airplanes when we do the conversion with the Italians and the Germans. It's a tri-national establishment before you go mm-hmm. off and just do the British conversion stuff. We're flying all clean jets, and one of the trips was just to get airborne, head out to the coast, and just firewall it, and it went quickly. Wow. You're a new pilot to the airplane. You've never been supersonic before. They give you this great big 25-ton jet and just go, and it was amazing. Um, very smooth yes. ride because it's got high wing loading, but um, very good performance. Having said that, we don't like to refuel very high in the 20s, especially with a war load on or even a training load. Sure. So, um, so yeah. What was the highest you ever had one? Altitude-wise, not very high at all. Um, <laughs> no. um, I would like to be down low then. Yeah, we did. And, and on a high-level transit, if we, we we used to be able to take all the weapons off and carry eleven point two tons of fuel, which is what turns out by two point two about twenty five thousand pounds. Would that be about right? Yes. Uh, mm, we sure. should carry about twenty five thousand pounds of fuel on a transit to Norway. We used wow. to do stuff up there. Uh, maybe some refueling on the way, uh, or maybe perhaps we did it. I think within that fit as well on the way to Alaska um, for Cope oh. Thunder. But we, um, yeah, I, I didn't get above 25 on that trip. Um, and okay. I certainly don't think I ever saw above 30 in the, in the tornado <laughs> at all. Um, I okay. know the guys in the F3 did because they were flying cleaner jets and they were, they were doing sure. high-level stuff. But we just didn't need to be there, so we didn't go. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said Mach 1.1, uh, mm-hmm. what, maybe five or 600 knots uh, was the best you ever saw? Or yeah, what, what yeah you cl- close to the 600. Um, okay. We're getting close to 600. The airframe was actually limited to 1.3. We did, you know, I said we had the ramp control for the... Mm-hmm. Um, when that was taken out, they decided when you start hanging bombs and stuff off and, and off the airplane and you want to go and bomb stuff and go quickly, you can't go one, anything above 1.3. And we were lucky to get 1.1 without running out of fuel. So. Right. Um, so to be perfectly honest, um, they just they just took out the ramp structure. So they limited us to 1.3, but we generally messed around at low level at 420, 480 for targets, 540 sometimes for targets. But we could mm. we could cruise at 540 for quite quite a reasonable amount of time, and it's a good way of catching wow. up on lost time. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine so. How about maximum g-force? Uh, not much. Limiting obviously depending on the, the fuel tanks that we had on board. Um, I right. in the tornado without talking about inadvertent excursions, uh, never pulled more than about five and a half to six um, okay. at any given time. And generally speaking, we tended to do our manoeuvres, tactical formation manoeuvres, at between two and four G. Again, we didn't like to wing flash. You guys can see us from up there. If we start mm. sticking it on its ear and pulling, you're going to see vapour trails and what's that down there, let's shoot him, or you're going to see the wing flash. So we tended to do between two and four G for our tactical turns, depending on what we're up to. Um, okay. Whatever you could get afterwards. Sure. All right. But I assume you still wore G suits, yeah. anti G suits. Yeah. Right? Yeah, okay. we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, we've already touched on many of the strengths and weaknesses. Sounds like of the aircraft, but overall, seems like a very adaptable and prolific and effective aircraft. We, I think, for the runway cratering mission we talked about before, the danger in that, of course, is that anyone who has a runway that might be attacked is going to protect it. And so mm. that was a dangerous mission for you. But what other maybe strengths or weaknesses have we not discussed yet that you, in your experience, Cam, uh, could identify for us? Um, I think it, it did have a fairly good electronic warfare uh, suite attached. We had chaff and flare oh. pods. Uh, we had mm-hmm. uh, they were external pods, so they were never integral within the fuselage. Uh, um, okay. So they were pods on the outboards. We had again British derived uh, equipment. The Boz 
Chaff and Flare pod and the Sky Shadow ECM pod. Um, All right. Again, you don't always get proper feedback as to how effective they actually are, but but it certainly had that as, a, as an assistance. Mm. I think we've covered most of the other strengths, though. I, I, it did have a yeah. few weaknesses. The sort of thing that springs to mind, and again, it reminds me of one of your previous guests or a comment that you might have made, that it didn't have an integral ladder. Uh, that itself isn't a weakness, but it, it shows that it really wasn't suited to deployment. So we could, we could oh. deploy, you know, sort of a, a, an RAF Akrotiri. They're always ready to have tornadoes. But if someone said at the drop of a hat, let's take these this squadron and put them in here, let's go fly the mission, it would take a while to get everything sorted just for things like having a ladder for some of the backup equipment. Just to get equipment. in and out of the airplane. Yeah, absolutely, and backup equipment. <laughs> well, to, I remember once diverting into Monte Real in Portugal, and we had low oil and this was supposed to be one of the NATO sort of diversion bases. They should have all the nozzles, adapters, and things that should be able to replen our airplane. We couldn't find the special pump needed to put the oil into the engine. So a lot of phone calls to base to try and get that. So, I mean, there, there are anecdotes that go with it, but it, it took a lot of infrastructure to support it, to take it somewhere. And when it is there, it's yeah. great, but you do need sure. to support it. And some of the complex systems within the aircraft were, in my view, slightly over-complex. Uh, it mm. used to have a, a fuel-cooled gearbox, a cross-drive clutch, so if you lost an engine, you, all you got was an oil pressure caption for that engine. You still had full hydraulics. You clutched both gearboxes off. Uh, but again, that just co- adds complication. And as the mm-hmm. airplanes got older, things start to break and, and often, you know. So right. I think if they'd have just made it a bit simpler. Mm. You're right. Well, mm. this is, as you stated, 60s, 70s technology. Yeah. So mm. we did the best with the information we had back then. Yeah. Regarding the ladder, the F-16 did not have a self-contained ladder. And so I posted recently on Instagram a photograph of me getting out with just a regular six or seven foot ladder mm. at an airport where I stopped one time, just a regular, <laughs> like a painter might use. Yeah. And um, on the F-18, though, if you went somewhere and they didn't know what they were doing, at the very least, you could climb out and walk on the leading edge extensions and just slide down one of the trailing edge flaps yeah. did you have a way to get out of the airplane if there was nobody there to help you yeah uh, yeah. yeah we did we do much the same we'd uh, we'd open, okay. open the canopy obviously and uh, and jump onto the onto the wing and then just jump down on the drop tanks and down okay um, but it's all very <laughs> undignified climbing up the drop oh, tank yes. again in your g-suit your emotion suit <laughs> but yeah so so we could and it was possible um it's That's just right. i think some of the things were slightly over complex Right. Yeah. And the F-18, I found it difficult to explain to someone shouting down from the cockpit. But if I could slide down, then I could usually train whoever it was to, hey, here's when I get up there, here's how you're going to put it back up for me so I can get out of here. Even when we had a deployment somewhere, you, you land away at a different base and we would do that. Even for us, when we got back to the airplane, trying to open the canopy was a, a special touch. <laughs> I, that's for us. <laughs> it took, took a few attempts. and Or you get oh, the navigator yeah. to pump up the hydraulics. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like most aircraft, there are many workarounds, but you, you yeah. learn to love your, your oh, ride, yes. don't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about notoriety? Where would the listener have heard or seen the tornado? I knew this question was coming, and I had to spend a bit of time thinking about it, because in popular culture, <laughs> certainly I'm thinking in a popular culture context, I mean, the, the Tomcat has mm. it easy, doesn't it? And oh, the yes. F-16 does too, but as right. does the A-10. I don't think you really see much of the tornado at all in popular culture anywhere. It's very European-centric. Um, and mm-hmm. I think your listeners who love their fighter airplanes will know what a tornado is. But a listener sure. who's just dipping in go, what the hell is one of those? Um, so I don't think you'll see much in popular culture. But what I will say is that the place where it's got its notoriety, perhaps, is 
certainly over the last 20 to 25 years, and Gulf War One was when it really first started off. Um, we, we took a few losses because they had missions with JP-233. Uh, we started off at low level because all our training was, was towards mm-hmm. towards total air superiority and so on. And in fact, that was the mission itself, you know, uh, as needed. So certainly within the UK and within Europe, uh, certainly in the UK for us as Brits, uh, Gulf War One was where it really became iconic if you like, for, for those that love the tornado. Um, the, the performance, despite having some losses, the missions were very successful, certainly also when we moved up to high-level stuff and the uh, the guys were dropping paveways and designated and so on, the precision munitions. And also more mm-hmm. recently in some of the conflicts that we've seen in the Middle East and uh, against insurgent bands and groups in Afghanistan and so on. Um, again, it familiar very highly with the Brits, but if you ask me to say where I've seen one on the TV... <laughs> you, I, I'm, so I'm much, stumped. Huh? Yeah, I'm stumped on it's, that one. It's yeah. the silent warrior, we'll say. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Cam. I was in college when, as you call it, Gulf War One happened. Mm. We'd call it Desert Storm. Mm. And I remember, for me, I don't think I was necessarily aware of the tornado, but I remember some TV footage of a couple of Brits that were shot down. I want to say John Peters, John Nichols. Mm-hmm. I don't know if those names sound yeah. familiar. I, mm-hmm. It's not that I knew them off the top of my head. Yeah. I looked it up before our interview mm-hmm. here, but and one of them was pretty badly bruised, I presume from the low altitude, high speed ejection, but maybe he'd been beaten up mm-hmm. by the captors. And it's a pretty iconic photograph because he's, he's turned his body, he's tucking his chin into his shoulder and the, the Union Jack, yep. is that the name? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep, is right there displayed. And I just remember, oh, those bastards, you know, they were yeah. treating him roughly. But on the other hand, he had a dangerous mission going mm-hmm. in low and, and attacking those runways and, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. and paid the price. But I believe both of them, or maybe more, I don't remember how many total mm-hmm. POWs you had lost in the tornado, but I believe they were all repatriated. Yeah, the, the POWs were, um, and some of them were, were quite badly treated. And, and the bruises, I believe, for John, for both Johns, were from their captors. Um, oh, we, wow. um, so we, we did have a few uh, who didn't make it out, uh, but that, who didn't make it to become POW, so um, um, a couple of instances where uh, the crew member died and the other crew member made it, but um, but yeah, we had quite a few guys, or a few of the guys were taking POWs, one of them su- subsequently, tragically, was killed in a Hawk accident but uh, oh. but yeah, speaking to them they, they tell us of, of their experiences, and in fact they would do lectures to the, I think we call it Siri now, but the uh, mm. escape and evasion type training, they would give lectures yes. on, on how they were treated um, and right. how to behave, and and in fact, you know, you talk to the guys afterwards, and they talk about some of their uh, their actions and motions were symbolic in terms of I'm looking away. This is not me talking to you when I'm mumbling to the Iraqi camera. Right. Um, so right. so that and that that was the the sort of notoriety thing. That's the thing that I think got people to realise that you know who are these guys? What's going on? We've got tornadoes there. This is for real. Um, and mm-hmm. then since then, I think the tornado, certainly with the airplane enthusiasts, has been iconic. And, and they've certainly um, gone well with or, or taken well to the with the retirement of the airplane. You know, they've got involved, they've come to see it. Uh, there's so many photographers these days now with their digital photography, they like to sit on top of a, a mountain in Wales uh, that we used to mm-hmm. fly around, which has got a, a one-way system on the map purely so you don't go hitting each other coming the other way <laughs> sure. um, that is near a little town in in wales the mccuntliffe loop um, and now the advent of digital photography everyone's there with a camera and sometimes i oh, wish yes. back in the day i had a digital camera i'd have so many more cool pictures than, <laughs> than, than the few i have now 
Right. Is that called the Mach Loop, or is that something different? No, that's the same place. Uh, we tended not okay. to call it the Mach Loop. It seems to oh, really? shorten quite nicely into Mach, as in speeds. Um, but uh-huh. in, in essence, it's actually near a small Welsh town called McCuntleth, which is spelled M-A-C-H, and don't ask me the rest, because it's all vowels. Sorry, it's all uh, consonants. Ah, um, and so it was that... just known as McCuntleth Loop, or we would just call it the Loop. But it seems to have okay. taken on this Mach Loop, and there's some great pictures on there. You see a lot oh, yes. of tornadoes in 67 wing around the loop. Uh, I'm sure that's the guy showboating. I, I shouldn't say it, but uh, we, we tended to fly around at 45 wing at low level unless you really were going at the speed of heat. But, uh, hey, why not? Let, let the guys get a good picture. Yeah. Well, we can still justify it as good low-level training. Yeah. Just the fact that there's 20 guys on the hillside trying yeah. to take pictures, well, that's just uh, coincidence. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. all right. Well, Cam, we're just about done. Any good sea stories you want to share with us? Um, people really enjoyed the workarounds that our F-14 guests talked about. Did you have any workarounds in the tornado or any exciting emergencies or any operational employment of the tornado you're willing I mean, to share? Not, not really. I think there's was, there was one, um, it made me think about air-to-air refueling, and I, I thought I'll, I'll try and think of something that's got a, um, a connection with the F-18 for you. And um, it was okay. on, we, you guys have cool names for your operations and missions, you know, so Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield right. and, and so on. Ours are just picked by a computer for the next letter that comes along. So <laughs> so um, uh, Gulf War One, we sometimes call it, but Operation Granby, that was called, which was your Desert Storm. Well, the, one of the ones I got involved in was Opdural, which is, I think, um, might have been Southern Watch. or it, We were based in uh, Saudi Arabia and flying into Iraq and checking out that they weren't deploying missiles and, and bombing their own Kurds and so on. So we used to do right. great big missions. We call them guerrillas. So great big mission with everybody going across. We'd have you guys giving us support. We'd have tankers from all nations, the French and their mirages. And I remember one day we were coming back from a mission there and uh, my navigator and I said, let's bootleg the tanker. Let's just call up the tanker. Will he let us in for a dry prod? We've got to try one of these KC-135s with the mm. uh, the boom, but with the, the hose and the, and the basket the on the maiden, end. The Iron Maiden, as we call oh, it. <laughs> I used to hate it with a passion. So yes. we thought, I listened to him. I said, OK, let's go do this. So we bootlegged the tanker and myself and my buddy in the, in the two jets. We come up to the tanker and we try prodding into this thing and we're having such a nightmare. We just can't get into this thing. And then these two F-18s just come up as cool as a cool thing on a cool day with ice cream. They just sit up there and they say, uh, can we come get some fuel? We need to get back to Mother or whatever he called it. And we right. say, yeah, sure. Be, my, be our guest. And I, I kid you not, these guys straight in, first time. And my navigator and I were like, oh, my God, that's so embarrassing. Come the next day, we go on a mission we're briefing. The warlord comes in and says, the tank has gone down. Keep briefing. And we were going to have one of our own Victor tankers, which was lovely to tank from. Keep briefing. Mm-hmm. We carried on briefing. We got you a tanker. It's a KC-135 with the hose and drone. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no. And then he looks at us and he goes, Cam, Moz, you've done this. Brief the guys. We didn't get in. <laughs> and off we went. <laughs> but we did. On the mission, we did. We got in. When, okay. when it really mattered, it worked. When but the chips were down, as we said. When the chips say. were down. And we just thought, you guys and your F-18s are so cool. Straight in, into the Iron Maiden. I love that. <laughs> well, if I can speak for our F-18 brethren, we would have missions where we did that three, four times in one mission. Ooh. And so I will credit proficiency more so than the aircraft or the pilots just to try to be modest but <laughs> yes that yeah. was a difficult 
aircraft to, I found it harder to stay in the KC-135 than to get in. It was usually fairly stable to, to yeah. get in. Yeah. But once you got in, you had, to, you had to put this really unnatural bend in the hose and fly off the knuckle of the probe. And it was yeah. very strange, especially if they went into a turn or if there was any turbulent weather. Oh, so, I, I agree. There yeah. was no real formation <laughs> reference, was there? You were, you were just looking at this tiny nine-inch diameter thing or whatever the knuckle was, and <laughs> rather than a whole airplane, which is you could do with That's regular right. refueling. But, but I think it's the same thing, though, Jello. I think if you get a whole bunch of fast jet guys together, the stories always get down to air to air refueling. I've had a bent pitot probe. You can feel it all the way through the airplane. It's boing, 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 boing. Uh, did I hit the pitot? I think so. <laughs> we get back. Everyone's pointing at the jet. You know, yeah. um, we have hoses down, intakes, scratches on canopies. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Well, it comes with the territory. Yeah. You know, just a lot like us. We, yeah. You get to a point in life, you get very banged up and bruised and scratched and a lot of a lot of scars but a lot of good stories like you said well cam this has been a lot of fun thank you and i'm sorry we couldn't do this in person but uh you know one of these days if your trip makes it over here or i can make it over there then we need to to meet up so on that note what does the future hold for you i mean you're living a good dream here having flown military and now flying commercial yeah yeah living the dream really um the job's great Uh, one thing that i like about the airline job now for me is there's no responsibility outside the job. I, I think right. you must see that, you know, from your position yes. previously. You just you come home, it takes a while to get used to, you throw the keys at someone and that's it. As long as you're not on the news, everything's okay. That's right. um, and, that's right. and that's really good. So it means lots of time with, uh, with the family, um, uh, which is good. And in my spare time, I fly around in the little basic trainers with um, Royal Air Force cadets, young guys and girls that, oh. for air experience flying. For me, I say I do it for them. It's for me to put a flying suit on again and turn upside down in a very small, slow airplane and sit in the crew room and drink tea and chat with the fellows. So I get to do that. Um, So, yeah, a bit more of the same, really, just um, really loving life. You know, it's um, it's just great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I haven't come across too many people in my studies here on the podcast who are miserable or homeless or, you know, <laughs> no. down on their luck. When you've lived the kind of lives that we've led and granted your experiences are different than mine, but not that different. We seem to find success mm. and happiness in most everything else we do. And I think that's a testimony mm. to, or testament to anyone who's young out there mm. listening, who's contemplating this lifestyle. I would say go for it because it teaches you life lessons that will make you happy and fulfilled and, and quite successful the rest of your life. I would yeah. contend yeah i agree with that and i think um, again I, I, I can reference um uh, one of your previous guests and again apologies because i can't remember his name but uh one of your previous get- guests was saying a lot of people come up to him and say what's it like flying the f-16 and and he mm. said yeah it's okay and you realize you take a step back and you go hang on a minute i'm flying fast jets around here and and we, i think we've all gone through it it just becomes the mundane and and when mm. you do leave yes i miss it I miss working with guys on the squadron. It's the people, I think, more than the job because people and the job just makes it perfect. And I think the advice I'd give further to what you've given there, Jello, to anyone that then does get in, never take it for granted. Enjoy every day mm. of doing it. And even though you have your bad days when those secondary duties or that inspection's got to be done or whatever, um, you're still getting to fly around in an F-18 or a 16 or a tornado, not a tornado, a typhoon. Anymore, um, right. and, yeah. and never take it for granted because it's, it's just great. You know, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, so true, Cam. And it's hard to remember that when you're in the trenches doing that silly inspection or something else. But if you can take a step back, that is the message I try to convey. And and you could say the same thing about having children. I mean, there are times when it's difficult and you wish you would get through with whatever stage you're in. But you've got to enjoy that, too, because as I'm learning, my 
oldest is about to graduate high school and he'll be off to college next fall. So it goes quickly, whether it's family or flying. And I totally agree, Cam. Thank Mm -hmm. you for that. Well, I didn't ask you if you have a call sign or how to explain it. So do you... Do you have such a thing? Um, no, not really. Um, okay. In the, in the Royal Air Force and, and the Brit services, we tend to have nicknames. Um, so usually you, you well, get That's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Okay. But we tend not to use them very much. Um, uh, it, certainly while we're f- not while, really while we're flying. But if you're lucky, it can just be a contraction of your name. So I'm just Cam from, from Cameron. Okay. Or, or your surname. And we get that. And a good friend of mine actually gave me a hard time. He said, what's it with you Royal Air Force guys? A guy with a name like Cook, you just call him Cookie. You just add E on the end. You know, what, sure. what's that all about? But occasionally some guys, <laughs> would have it we used to have guys called vidal fat boy whatever you know but um but no i was lucky enough just to be cam although at some point in my uh, second tour as a tactical weapons instructor i i had the name danger man attached at one point uh, danger man yeah it's, it's kind of a simple story really what used to happen with you know in those times when the, the messes were a bit more full than they are now and, and beer mm-hmm. was cheap and we're all there on a friday night at happy hour um, sometimes I might just disappear from the room because I needed to go to the bathroom or something. And while I was away, um, a, a masked figure would come in and perhaps fire the mess cannon and bring down the suspended ceiling in the in the mess with uh, with an accomplice. Um, and of course, by the time I got back, I missed it. Um, and, wow. and this this masked character was was Danger Man, and there was always a suspicion that I might have been that guy. But uh, no, it was I, just coincidence. Yeah, indeed. Though. So I can never confirm yeah. or deny. <laughs> that I was Danger Man, um, but it was it was never really. To be uh, honest with you, Jello, in the same way that you got you've got your nickname, it was never really a yeah. nickname. It was just is Danger Man coming out tonight? No, I don't know, and uh, yeah, you know, so so not. I don't, not I don't know where to find him. Yeah, oh, yeah. Gosh. yeah. No. awesome. All right, yeah. well, Danger. I mean, sorry, Cam. Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, it just shows that we can cut up no matter what country we come from. Mm-hmm. When you uh, leave, leave this life, you, you tend to have to blow off some steam. And I definitely I've seen you guys in your act. It's, it's a pretty good act uh, the, the Brits put on. So, yes, I can imagine what that must have been like. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Cam, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time today. And unless you got any parting shots or anything we skipped, I, I think we can wrap this up and get out of here. No, let's do that. It's been great fun, and thanks for having me on. You're welcome. We'll see you. Okay, bye now. All right, awesome. Hey, Danger Man, thanks again for the time. I hope our flight paths overlap sometime. Maybe we can meet up either over there or over here. And Well, not down here. I'm in Santiago right now. But at any rate, it'd be great to meet you sometime. But what a great interview, and, and thanks again. Danger Man, or sorry, Cam. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so Danger Man wrote me back afterwards and said that, yes, Saudi Arabia is still flying Tornado aircraft, and that each gun, remember there are two 27-millimeter cannon, and each one has 180 rounds, so there are 360 total. And he apologized for not knowing that, but he said most of his reconnaissance flying, of course, they didn't have the gun, so it wasn't really an issue for him. And then he did want to also mention, although it's not a question I generally ask in the aircraft, series, but he wanted us all to know that there is a fly-by-wire flight control system with mechanical backup, and it sounds a little bit like what we had in the F-18 Legacy Hornet. All right, I have several new terms that you'll find in the glossary, MRCA, ECR, IDS, ADV, tilde, alarm, etc. That will all be in the glossary section of our website. Head on over to fighterpilotpodcast.com and look for the glossary. 
All right, so we want to try something new on this episode. As many of you know, DCS, Digital Combat Simulator, is a very popular and realistic flight simulation that we have talked about many times on this show. Many of you enjoy doing it, so we thought we might invite Matt Wagner back once a month, maybe on the last show of the month, to tell us what's going on at Eagle Dynamics. So, Matt, welcome back, and how are you? I'm good, Jello, and thanks for having me back. Um... A little drama here, but <laughs> most bad. of my time focused on the Hornet and the uh, F-16 lately, as well as some of the new uh, Warbirds. Excellent. And uh, living here in Phoenix, things are starting to heat up right now, and I think we're going to have our first 100-degree weather. Actually, we already had our first 100-degree weather uh, earlier this week, so um, you know, standing by for the oven now. Oh, man, I can imagine. So what's new in DCS world? Well, recently, actually, literally today, we uh, started the pre-orders for our uh, Falkowulf 190A8, uh, the Anton, which is uh, the big uh, radial uh, Luftwaffe fighter uh, during World War II and really excelled in the low to medium altitude. It had a, a lot of firepower, 220 millimeters and the, uh, the smaller machine guns. Uh, armored well, and it's going to be a really good fit for our uh, DCS World War II audience. And then even bigger news is we announced that we're going to be starting the uh, pre-order for F-16 uh, Charlie uh, next week. Awesome. Which will uh, be the CM, kind of uh, circa 2007 uh, U.S. Air Force, Air National Guard version. And we plan on having that uh, out for early access uh, come early uh, autumn. Excellent. So those are the those are the two big ones we're working on uh, right now. Of course, okay. other stuff we're working on are uh, things like the new uh, carrier communications, which obviously you know uh, pretty well. <laughs> Some of your help on yep. that being the LSO. And uh, the new carrier itself, uh, some new AI modeling, damage modeling, dynamic campaign. So uh, we definitely got a, a, a lot of... Um, uh, stuff in the oven right now. Okay. Well, that sounds real exciting. I know you guys are going to continue to knock it out of the park. Thanks for the update, and we'll catch you next month. I look forward to it. Awesome. All right. Let's see what else. Well, I started telling you who the new Patreon supporters are at the end of the show, and I like that. So let's do that here. We recently went over 200 patrons, and we're just so thrilled for that. Thanks for the support. And of course, they're all enjoying the exclusive content and early access to our episodes, including behind the scenes. But we want to thank our newest Patreon division leads, Brent Cash, Rob Wells, Julia Pennington, and Wolf. We have a new mission commander, John Soldow. He lives right here in San Diego, right there in San Diego with me. And we lost an air boss. I want to say thanks very much to Eric Otterson, who supported us for 11 months and enjoyed every benefit of the air boss for all that time. We're sorry to see you go, but we're so thrilled for the support, Eric. So thanks very much. And we want to welcome new air boss, Ives Bellmans. So thanks to all our Patreon supporters, and if you want to join them and enjoy the benefits and help support the show, head on over to patreon.com and check out the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Well, that will do it for this episode. As always, want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components, and dare I say also the British equivalent on behalf of CAM. Well, as you just learned, and I did too, the tornado has many different roles. We don't have a reconnaissance song yet, but we played our musician Jaime Lopez's attack song in the intro. But since there is a fighter role as well, we'll sign off with the fighter song. So we'll see you all next time. Until then, take it easy. See ya. 
been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line, 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget, share us with your network. Thanks for listening. You, how would a person introduce you? Would it be retired flight lieutenant Cameron Mackay, Royal yeah. Air Force, or how yeah. would you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, retired. I seem to have retired young, but I suppose that's the, the only way we can say it. I suppose. But okay. Yeah, yeah that would that would do it. Flight. Okay. Um, we we say lieutenant, but you guys say lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> well, we spell defense with a what is it C, and you do it with an S also. Or no, no other, way, other way around. Is it the other I way? I can yeah, think other of way it around. Yeah. Visually, yeah. yeah. I say tornado. You say tornado. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post 9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.